So I welcome everybody. Thanks for coming. This is a podcast um, by myself. Um, we talk about a topic that is pretty established in wildlife research and which has many implications for conservation and for science-based policy. And this topic is called segregation in animals. We will talk about why it matters, how it relates to a science-based conservation policy in the future and for a past performance assessment. Now, the topic is pretty relevant because, as I will show, it will expose the limits and the flaws of our current animal conservation management and policy. And it will also show that we actually do not know so much about animals yet, and therefore it's pretty um, peculiar that we um, try to manage them when we don't have the basics right. And we probably will spend a lot of time on getting the basics right. And so in the meantime, we need a better solution. That's my point here. So uh, I'm using a list of selected mammal and bird species, but I'm sure the more you study this subject, the more you will find, and this is ongoing research, of course. And um, my feeling actually is it's pretty widespread worldwide and can be found in many parts of the animal kingdom in many um, directions. Um, now, it looks to me that classic work on the topic of animal segregation was done by Terry Boyer and um, other uh, scientists that I'm listing here and that I'm citing here. Um, but namely, it centers around sexual segregation in ungulates that would be white-tailed deer and moose, let's say. Um, there are some very classic publications on the matter, such as by Terry Boyer, 2004, or by Rockstool and Neuhaus, 2002. Um, and these authors and their colleagues generally show that their study species differ in the use of habitat and thus in their locations um, across, in this case, uh, by sex, by gender. So males and females differ. And therefore, and here it comes, they should be treated as different species. So basically, that means you need not one management plan for the species of moose. You actually would need two one for females and one for males. And then that probably also changes throughout the year. And um, the difference between males and females might also change by location, in, in by country and so on. So that has many implications. Um, and um, this includes, of course, um, policy and management and um, adaptive management and all those things. So it, it's pretty fun foundational. And um, I have to tell you that this is not new, this knowledge, um, as you can see by the publication dates. And um, it's surprising that this hasn't come more to the forefront uh, in conservation policy yet. So for ungulates, animals with, hoof and with hooves, and that gets frequently hunted, um, they uh, are certainly in need of a management that is proper. And... Um, Therefore, it is really relevant there. It also applies, again, elsewhere, as I mentioned, for instance, for China. People have shown it for the Tibetan gazelle, such as papers by Li and Yang, 2007. Um, to explain these differences between males and females and why they have different habitat and location uses, um, there are different hypotheses brought forward. One is the stomach and metabolism uh, relevance. Um, but there are other uh, hypotheses, namely the predation risk hypothesis, foraging selection, or activity budget hypothesis and others are, are brought forward. Uh, one classic paper there is by Bosa and Boyer, 2002 or 2000, um, for the gastrocentric hypothesis. Um, but 
my bet is here that this can also be shown with many other animals and with many other aspects. And so if you're interest, interested in this, um, you can see a recent publication by Wehrmaus and Sims, 2008. Um, and you may extend it to many other conditions and animals overall, including birds, of course. Um, with birds, I like to show you or discuss quickly one topic um, with white-naped cranes. White-naped crane is a crane that um, basically breeds in Mongolia and uh, Central Asia, China, in that area. And um, the home ranges of these species differ in their size and area um, and in their environmental attributes, in this case, livestock densities. So during summer, you can basically find a separation, a different use of uh, areas by age class, uh, specifically sub-adults, how old they are, and it takes four years for them to be a breeder, perhaps. And once they are breeding, they have a very small home range, but before that, they have actually very big home ranges, um, somewhat overlapping, but not entirely, often significantly different. So just one example that it's not only males, females here, but it's also, in this case, um, age class, and then the attribute in this case would be livestock. So that in, in Mongolia, where the white-napped crane uh, breeds and where this study actually was tested, um, um, there are... Um, different animals, livestock, including sheep, um, some cattle, perhaps even horses. So you, you get the idea. It gets actually pretty complex very really fast. And if you want to capture that in policy, um, then, yeah, what do you do? And uh, so far, I haven't seen these policies really truly applied or implemented and enforced. Uh, I don't think there's a wildlife um, enforcement agency that uh, deals with these species uh, and with males, females, or by age class and then um, makes laws about it or enforces the laws. So, um, however, it's pretty clear this is not rocket science in, to understand why um, there are these differences, in this case uh, with birds and white-naped cranes that would center around the nests and that the nesting and pre-nesting and non-nesters have different habitat ranges and habitat uses and um, a failed nester would move completely different. So, um, anyway, when it comes to effective conservation management, such as migratory species, it must be taken into account. And um, in the moment, in my view, it's not. Or at least I'm wondering how it's taken into account. I haven't heard about it. So um, that's obviously something um, that uh, is mind-boggling, if you want. <laughs> um, probably a certain failure to wrap our um, head around what's really going on with these animals, with all different species of animals across the United Kingdom, when you separate them out by uh, age or by sex. And um, there are other factors probably as well. The more we study them, the more we learn about them. So it's pretty clear that an animal species is not homogenous, uh, certainly not on a subspecies level, and not when it comes to gender, sex, or age, or even animal experience. And I think that's where I would like to leave it, although you might extend this view a little bit and find out that the same species with the same characteristics might actually differ in their own culture. What that means is that some animals do this and this, and other individuals do this and this, and it might not be the same. Um, and then you run into these management questions about animal culture and how you quantify it and um, what animal culture really is, um, which has to do with the upbringing and with the learning of the animals in the landscape. Um, again, with migratory uh, animals, it gets even more complex. So I leave it there. I find it mind-boggling. It's called segregation in animals. Um, the keyword often is sexual segregation, but you also find segregation by age and other factors. And um, it's such a simple 
robust concept that you can test out with telemetry or with surveys or with citizen science even. But when it comes to implementing that in the real world of management and how we do management, um, you will be um, pretty um, perplexed, I find. At least um, I am. And if you hear anything on this topic or if you can share anything with me, please do. I would be happy to learn about it myself. Um, the citations I gave you are just the rudimentary ones. There's much more by now. Ecology has published more on this in recent times, but um, I showed you some basic concepts. Um, so I leave it there. Nice talking to you. And I'm looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks so much. Goodbye.